It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're new to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, welcome. Got a bunch of cool links in the description below to help you start on your health and fitness journey. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Happy to have you. Really excited about this week's episode. It's episode 147. We're with Dr. Eric Helms of 3D Muscle Journey. 3DMJ, if you know it better through that, or the uh, Mass Journal, if you subscribe to that. He is a lifter, educator, researcher, all-around sports science smart guy. Uh, We're going to talk about some cool stuff this week. We're talking about gaining muscle to gain strength. Do you need to get bigger muscles to get stronger? Do you need to get stronger to get bigger? So we're going to start there. We're going to go through concurrent training, so training cardio uh, and strength performance at the same time. What do? And then uh, wrapping up with one of my current pet topics energy expenditure during exercise what's the story there also if you're familiar with that uh, pet topic you'll know that i've been recommending that people read herman ponzer's book burn he's coming on the podcast so that'll be fun uh, and then we've got uh alan aragon's coming on the podcast we're going to be recording that i believe in the beginning of august and a few other the heavy hitters in this sort of health, fitness, strength, conditioning, medical sort of hybrid. I think Nadolsky's coming back on. Dan Lieberman from the book, Exercised. Uh, it's going to be great. So got all that to look forward to. And then finally, hey, it's Austin's birthday today. If you're listening to this on July 12th, the day we release this thing, uh, go wish Dr. Baraki a happy birthday. Ideally, he posts on Instagram. You know, he's few and far between there. But the stuff he does post is fire. And his stories are all, always filled with uh, a bunch of cool research and um, uh, advanced sort of learning topics. So definitely go wish him a happy birthday. Shout out uh, for me to my boy. I know we've been missing the second most handsome doctor in North America on the podcast, but he will be rejoining us shortly on some upcoming episodes. Uh, last announcement before we hop into this week's podcast is going to be for our seminars. We are back. It's 2021. We are going to be live in person doing these two-day seminars. Um, and also the pain and rehab guys have a seminar as well in October that's in Florida. So our seminar schedule looks like we're in San Antonio in August, Philadelphia in October. We'll be at Alan Thrall's gym, Train Untamed. Uh, actually, it's called Untamed Strength. But every time I say Alan's gym, I just say Train Untamed. It's like reflexively there. But <laughs> that's where we're going to be in November. Um, and then the pain and rehab guys, Dr. Derek Miles, Dr. Ma- uh, Michael Ray, are going to be in Gainesville, Florida in October. Links to all of that in the description below. Okay, enough stalling. Let's hop into this week's podcast with Dr. Eric Helms. If you were introducing yourself to somebody on an elevator of a fairly tall building, how would you uh, how would you end up doing that? That's uh, I would say that I'm someone who fell in love with lifting and fell far too hard and has had an extenuating long-term relationship uh, that has invaded every aspect of my life. So I am a lifter first and foremost, um, but it has become my profession, my intellectual pursuit, and probably the main way that I find meaning in life. So if you kind of take that from when I started lifting in 04 till now, I look back and now I've got a PhD in strength and conditioning. I'm a research fellow here at AUT in the Sports Performance Research Institute in New Zealand. Uh, where I primarily focus on like strength and physique sports science. Um, and I have PhD students that I'm very privileged to, to mentor under me. And I started a, uh, a company along with my colleagues where we try to serve the natural bodybuilding community primarily, but also just the drug-free lift, lifting community in general. And that's 3D Muscle Journey. And it's primarily about creating sustainable careers in competitive physique and strength sport. So it has to do with you know mindset, performance, health, the whole nine yards. And I've just gotten really, really nerdy over time as well. So uh, I've written some books and I do some uh, research reviewing along with my uber smart colleagues, uh, Dr. Eric Trexler, Dr. Mike Zerdos, and the uh, the artificial intelligence that calls itself Greg Knuckles. That's what I'm saying. It's like, do you think there's like a, any confusion, marketplace confusion? You're like 3D muscle journey, stronger by science, You're, or it's like, that's fine. We're just all friends in the same community that we oh, just happen to be. Is it market confusion or is it just blissful incestuousness? I, I think that's I, I mean, I'm, I'm fine with it. it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it's like it's like when the weekend keeps showing up on Drake's tracks and you're just like, yeah, we knew this was going to happen. And it's exactly. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. We're all better off uh, for it. Well, 
This is a privilege. Eric Helms on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. What better way to celebrate our two-year anniversary of meeting? Uh, we're not in London, but and we, we we had a pandemic happen in the interim, but mm-hmm. uh, finally making this happen. Well, we had that pain, the pain. We did. It wasn't really a, even a debate. It was like a, just like a media capture of like four dude, five dudes sitting around and kind of talking about things. But people were like, how was the debate? I'm like, I mean, I don't know that it was like a, a debate. But well, oh, you had you had the the supposed debate that was with with Omar, and then we just kind of had the let's talk about pain, baby, on Iron Culture with uh, <laughs> with Quinn Hennock and uh, yes and, and Co. So that was yeah, you've had you've had a few of those where you talk to Omar and it's meant to be a debate and it's kind of just talking, yeah, yeah. Well, so so it's funny. There's a meme page that we do not run, but it's like barbell instead of barbell medicine is barbell meme medicine, which. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of medicine I want to specialize in. Absolutely. And uh, they, they, yeah, that's exactly right. Everyone's like, wait, is it you guys or Spencer? It's like, actually, neither. It's somebody else. Well, so they posted something about Squat U, like basically like taking apart one of his posts. And then Steffi Cohen slides in the DMs and was like, let's get on a podcast together. Like it's our real account. And I was like, so this is a meme account. This has got 100%. I got this DM and I was like, uh, like a screen cap. And I was like, I mean, I'd be happy to get on a podcast with Steffi and whatever, but these things aren't debates, right? Because her thing was like, let's get on and we'll have a debate. Well, I'm like, it's it's not going to be like that. Can but. I just say, if Steffi, if you're listening, and you're probably not, but uh, you're probably not yet. You are stirring the pot lately. So I, I recently posted our, our recent mass article, and I had an article that apparently is controversial in some circles, just about how when you just add cardio uh, without necessarily tracking calories that your total energy expenditure doesn't go up as much as you think and that fat loss isn't as much as you think. And she goes in there and puts a... a oh, Herman Ponzer just took a... Exactly, a constrained energy model, right? So she she tags like Greg Doucette with like a laughing face. And I'm like, what is this? And then all of his followers come in and they're like, why are you shooting at cardio? And I'm like, I'm just reviewing the research here, folks. So apparently that's yeah. the thing. Yeah. But yeah, Steffi Cohen, she's not just someone who squats 500 pounds. She just likes to cause drama. What is this? I know. Yeah. And it's just strange, like what happens on social media. Can you just take people? So you're at Auckland University. It's AUT, Auckland University. What's the T? So we have two two universities. We're at the, uh, the University of the Auckland University of Technology. And that's got it. It's, everyone calls it AUT University, which is funny, but it's the Auckland University of Technology. Um, right. So I'm not at the University of Auckland. That is my wife, who is my enemy. Um, who is now doing her her master's degree in geology there because we are competing now. Um, so okay, <laughs> it's destroyed our, our our marriage, but it's it's worth the rivalry. Um, sure, yeah. So yeah, I, I I came out here in 2012 to do my master's thesis. I did a master's by coursework in the states. Did what they call a master's of philosophy here, which is basically just a thesis year. Um, and really loved the environment, uh, learned a lot, uh, got really involved with the, the great community at AUT, and then went on to do my PhD in strength and conditioning, finished that in 2017. And I've been here since in a uh, research fellow role that's pretty much entirely dedicated to mentoring PhD masters and some uh, honors dissertation students uh, and helping them with their research and, and their careers. Yeah, it's a pretty unique, you know, uh, you know, kind of niche in academia to be able to actually study strength conditioning mm. and, you know, particularly resistance training, like powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, bodybuilding, all that sort of stuff. Because as far as I know, uh, where Zordos is at, uh, he's at FAU still, I believe. Right. Yep. That's like the only other place that you could like get graduate education or graduate, you know, sort of, uh, program dedicated to the stuff where everything, you know, you might have an exercise science, you know, PhD department, um, but you know, they're not really focusing on resistance training and if they are, mm-hmm. it's not powerlifting. Um, yeah. so yeah, pretty unique sort of space there, which you've carved out nicely, but he's not just all brains. He's not just all brains folks you've done. I feel like every resistance training sport that you can do as I, far as I know, I've tried. And, and if there's more <laughs> out there, uh, I, I'm coming. <laughs> so, I'll <try> that too. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I really do love everything and anything lifting. So um, I had the goal in 2020, which in hindsight, might have not been the best year to try to this goal of, sure. of competing in strongman, Olympic weightlifting and powerlifting. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, what's the best way to make God laugh? Tell him your plans, old saying. Um, it sort of worked out. 
So I basically spent um, the latter half of 2019 and until the COVID lockdown doing a nice like hybrid training style of all three. And I had some some goals. I did some strongman, uh, not full cops, but I did a uh, log press um, deadlift competition. And then I did a stones and truck pull competitions. They weren't full comps, but they were kind of little cool things that were going on around here. And I wanted to do Auckland's Strongest Man um, and didn't get the opportunity to do it because of COVID. So it kind of shifted mm-hmm. things around. So I only had access to a barbell at home and some weights. So I thought, hey, well, let me push more towards Olympic weightlifting, competed in a few events. And then once the lockdowns had finished here in 2020, the last one was in August, uh, I snuck into a Highland Games competition in December, which was kind of the stand-in for that third strength sport. Um, but I did try, I trained for three, I competed in three, the, the three weren't exactly the same as the other three, but I, I feel like I, I, I kind of uh, achieved my goal. So, yeah. This is like when you publish a paper, but didn't previously register it, like the outcomes that you end up publishing. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah like, exactly. The secondary it hypothesis. Counts. It still counts. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, uh, yeah. So, so the reason why we got Dr. Helms on a podcast addition to him being so charming and witty and. Uh, uh, all around knowledgeable guys. He also walks the walk. So if you have not heard of uh, Dr. Helms, we're going to link all of his stuff in the description below. So check him out. Uh, and we're going to get down to business here and talk about a few cool things. If you're interested in strength training uh, and muscle physiology. So to start off, this is a contentious topic. I like to lead with the heavy hitters. Uh, it's a tale as old as time, muscle size and its relationship to muscle strength. It's been, you know, handed down generation, you know, of exercise science student to exercise science student mm. to exercise science professional that the bigger muscle has a greater strength potential than a smaller muscle. So it then, you know, bears out that you should uh, make your muscles bigger if you want to be stronger. What's uh, what's your view on the relationship between muscle cross-sectional area and its relationship to strength performance? Yeah. And um, I think while I have relatively firm conclusions on this, I think if we were to look at the general hierarchy of evidence and kind of take it at face value, you would think that maybe I I shouldn't because it's actually an interesting, um, Mm -hmm. it's it's a torrid story of, of, (laughs) of why we don't see the relationships we might expect in, in certain types of designs between hypertrophy and strength. So at face value, it has what you would call face kind of assumptive validity that if you add more contractile tissue to muscle, uh, it should be able to contract more, right, mm-hmm. uh, and produce more force. And indeed, when you do look at kind of like isolated muscle fibers, and when you do cross-sectional analyses, uh, you can see, like for example, if we just took a bunch of people off the street, we chucked them on an isokinetic dynamometer, um, and did uh, isometric knee extension, we would probably see if I had to just guess somewhere between a 0.7 to 0.9 relationship between quadricep cross-sectional area and knee extension force production or torque production, I should say. Um, However, that exists at the same time as data is suggesting that we could take those same people in that study, train them for eight weeks, and then look at the relationships in the change in cross-sectional area and the change in strength. And that correlation might drop to as low as non-significant like 0.02 um, or something that was generally a whole lot weaker. Um, this has led some to suggest that there is actually not a longitudinal relationship with changes in hypertrophy, with changes in strength. And if we just purely look at it from an experimentalist perspective and we just go, right, RCT data is all we got, you are almost forced into a position where you can say, oh, at best, there's a weak relationship between changes in hypertrophy and changes in strength. Mm -hmm. But I think if we want to truly evaluate it holistically, we have to acknowledge that anytime there is a small change in one variable and a change in another, it limits the amount of shared variance due to error and noise. And anytime you then measure that over a short time period, it can only amplify that. So the average resistance training study is only eight weeks long. Some, the rare ones, uh, done by the champions of of just persistence in in the field, last six months, you know, and they are few and far between. So when we talk about the kind of 
hypertrophy we can expect over that time period, especially in trained individuals, it's a very small number. And when we talk about the type of error that we get from our typical measures of body composition and change in hypertrophy, it's a relatively noisy measure considering those changes. Mm -hmm. And we also know that strength is multifactorial. It can be affected by arousal. It can be affected by biomechanics. It can be affected by motor learning. And it is different on different measurements. So you can take someone and give them that same isometric knee extension, or you can give them a squat, or you can give them a leg press, and the motor learning factor can, can make those numbers not that related to one another if they have not done one, you know. So there's a very complex relationship here, and in hypertrophy, it's but one potential contributing mechanism to strength. So, so we kind of can't really answer the question super well <laughs> with, with these right. randomized controlled trials. We can say for sure, what I will give credit to people who might disagree with me on this is that over a eight to 12 week period, the largest contributing factor to your strength development probably will not be a hypertrophy in most cases. Sure. I think that's very fair, right? Yeah. Um, however, for the conclusion to be tenable that hypertrophy has no relationship with strength, we would have to actually see that there would be a relative decrease in force production as you added more contractile tissue to a muscle. So that would be um, measured by the, the force production per unit of contractile tissue, which you can do. And when we look at uh, certain, certain models and certain designs, and that doesn't happen. So how do we square that circle? If we know that adding contractile tissue doesn't decrease the relative force production, it should be additive or at least contributory in some way, but it's not shown in the longitudinal research. We have to ignore one of those two things to have a hardline conclusion. So I think the only tenable conclusion is that we're not able to capture this with the, the errors, the rate of change, and the length of study that we have. And I'm still pretty confident that having more contractile tissue allows you to produce more force. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't dislike that position. In fact, I, I quite like it. I think my, <laughs> where, where I come at, to the, at this is, is a very similar I end up at a similar spot. My the thing that just keeps bothering me is that it would be very difficult to design a long enough study where you're actually trying to make people stronger and they don't serendipitously get larger. Because <laughs> yes. it's like like because the milieu that you're creating to actually produce strength in any sort of thing that I actually care about, so like squat or analog bench press or an analog deadlift or an analog, you know, or even, you know, Olympic weightlifting whatever you just, you would still gain some muscle mass. It would be so hard not to do. Um, so yeah, I, I, I end up at the same spot with like a, maybe a little addition. And, but the other thing that kind of, I, I, I bring to this is that people always ask, should I gain weight to get stronger? Right. Should I gain, because if I gain weight, then I gain more lean body mass, this, that, and the other. And it's like, well, if you're a weight class athlete and you're, you know, the odds of you gaining enough lean body mass and st while staying in your weight class to really improve your total anytime in the next, you know, 12 months, even it seems unlikely. Uh, so if you, if you're asking me this and you have a meet, you know, six months from now, you probably don't need to do like a hypertrophy block to like really maximize your leverage or whatever. Now, if that's part of your programming style, that's your preference. Like that's a whole nother discussion. But as far as like, just from a lean body mass improvement standpoint, I think it's like, well, if your strength program is good enough, it's probably going to produce enough hypertrophy to the extent that that's contributory to your strength anyway. And then like this weight gain deal, I don't know. It's it you're, the two kilos that you're going to gain in muscle mass in the next three months, maybe uh, it's probably not going to, you know, add another 50 points to your Wilkes or dots or whatever the, you know, the metric is. that Good lift points. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wilkes now defunct. You know, so George, I don't know. You, you like uh, this. Uh, okay. Greg actually did a, uh, an ad hoc analysis of the open powerlifting database, looking specifically at weight gain within individuals and how much of the variance it can explain in increasing in total. Mm -hmm. And I think he found like a, a 0.4 R score, which isn't that much. Like that's explaining, yeah. uh, what, 16% of the variance in strength, which isn't right. nothing, but a hundred percent. I agree. That is something that you need to look at as a, like a long-term investment. Um, mm -hmm. 
And you could say like, well, then in the next six months, I don't need to do any hypertrophy work, but you have to start a long-term investment at some point, right? You can't just sure, be yeah. like, eh, my Roth IRA, it adds up so slowly. <laughs> I'm just not going to add to it, you know? <laughs> so, sure, yeah. yeah. So no, I, I agree with yeah. you, man. Especially if you're going to cha- end up changing weight classes. I mean, I agree. It's just the whole thing. like, Because mm-hmm. then it's just it, it, you start getting reductionist, or some people do. They're like, oh, well, if I gain a little bit of weight, uh, that's good. So a lot more weight is going to be better. I should do this rapid weight gain thing. It's like, eh, it's probably not going to be a lot of muscle mass there, yeah. uh, particularly if un- if not enhanced or, you know, or have the best genetics on this planet. So I probably wouldn't go swing that far in the other direction. Um, an interesting sort of sequelae to this topic is uh what about physique athletes is there like do you think that there's a strong relationship between just actual strength development and muscular hypertrophy is it possible Uh, for like a body somebody who's super focused on hypertrophy to be like you know do i have to push rep maxes in the gym or is that just kind of a byproduct of training right so is is it uh does it go the other way does does Mm -hmm. strength cause hypertrophy um Mm -hmm. you know and this is something that's been I've always thought, no, that's not really how it works. Um, that increases in strength from hypertrophy-oriented programs are similar to increases in strength from strength-oriented programs, but probably sure. the motor learning is less of a contributing factor. And to some degree, a greater contributing factor is the fact that you are hopefully increasing cross-sectional area at a greater rate. Um, so it's kind of getting to the same place, but probably not the same height of strength. Um, with different uh, things that are going into that mix of what's adding to strength. So in the way I view it is that you should see your strength go up as a, a bodybuilder with some nice quotations around the word strength because it can take on multiple definitions mm-hmm. as it indicates that you are doing something sufficient to produce overload, um, which hopefully should result in hypertrophy, which should be part of what's contributing to why you see your strength go up. But strength doesn't mean maxing out on the big three. It doesn't sure. even mean hitting a new five RM. It can mean <laughs> your your RPE going down on sure. you know various lifts. You could be adding uh, a, a rep. You know, you, let's say you're training with a kind of an auto-regulated model where you train in the eight to fifteen rep range with a movement, and then once you hit fifteens, you you add a rep. You know, so long as you don't go over like say a nine RP or something like that in your last set. Um, shout out Brian Miner. So yeah. like <laughs> that, that, that's totally tenable and the, adding those reps and then adding that two and a half kilos to the, to the bar or the stack or the dumbbell or what have you, that is an increase in strength. I think it's just, um, looking at it from beyond the lens of the strength athlete who kind of uses it as these one-off expressions of strength. Yeah. I mean, strength is just really any strength improvement is any increase in force production that's measured in a specific context and the context can change depending on the application. So yeah, you could add reps, you could add velocity, you could, you know, decrease the exertion for a similar effort. I mean, there's a bunch of different ways to do this. Getting stronger in the 10 rep, you know, 10 to 15 rep range is still getting stronger. It's just in a different context than a one RM. Mm -hmm. Um, But it sounds like what you're saying is that the strength improvement is more of a byproduct of the training and to, to whatever degree hypertrophy is like contributing to that, it's probably more neurally mediated, motor learning mediated at the low, you know, one, two, three RM, you know, and then as you get higher, 10 RM, 15 RM, it's probably more not only metabolic, but also just structural changes to the muscles, which still happens at the lower reps. They're just different structural changes. And in any case, it's not that the strength improvement is allowing the hypertrophy to take place. Like, oh, I lifted a heavier weight. So that's more hypertrophy stimulus. It's just like, yeah, you, you actually got stronger. So you can, in order to meet you where you're at on that day, you're gonna have to add more load or extra rep or whatever. Well said. Oh, that's it. Cool. Well, now that (laughs) Dr. Helms has agreed with me and my long winded (laughs) leading question or statement, uh, yeah, we can wrap this up. No. Uh, all right. I think that puts a nice little, uh, bow on that. I mean, this is just something, I mean, Lenicky, Dr. Lenicky has been, you know, kind of Oh, harping is a, that's not the right word, but he kind of brought this at least to my attention, not personally, but through some of his tweets and then yep. some of his papers he's published. And I'm like, you know, that is interesting. And so it's definitely when people ask, what's the thing you've changed your mind on in the last, you know, whatever. And I'm like, I don't know. I think, I don't know that I've changed my mind as far as like that. I don't think hypertrophy, you know, muscle size contributes to strength performance at all, but it's certain, I'm certainly less confident in, in, the magnitude of that contribution, yes. probably less than I would have said five years ago, but 
Yeah, no, I, I would say um, I have a lot of respect for, for Jeremy, Dr. Lenicky, And while it hasn't fundamentally changed my position, it has made me uh, cr- critically think more through, which not grammar, apparently, but <laughs> the, <laughs> the magnitude of, uh, of change and the time courses we're talking about. So I don't just say things like, yeah, bro, like just get Jack and you'll be stronger, you know? Um, not that I exactly said things like that before, but I don't sure. think I thought about what degree does it contribute over what time course and what expected change do I think is actually related to changing cross-sectional area. So, mm-hmm. you know, and it's also opened my eyes a bit more to some of the data on intensity having a much greater relationship with strength adaptation than volume, while volume seems to have a more consistent relationship with hypertrophy. And then having that actually impact my my training methods. So I've taken uh, a big shout out to, to Mike T on this, Mike Tushir, is I have now for a lot of my power lifters, um, a, a, like a constant keeping in of singles at various RPEs that I think not only mm-hmm. stimulate strength, but also tell me an idea of where you're at. Um, and this kind of maybe slightly lower volume, but higher intensity approach where then I add on top of accessories, depending on where we're at in proximity to competition, I see the resource management differently than I did before. And I do think that uh, Dr. Lenicky is a part of that. There it is. Also a lot of name dropping in there. So mm-hmm. that's people know now that you're, you're some, I'm, one of the I'm in the people. know. That's right. <laughs> that's right. You're in the know. I've retired. You're in the, you're in the tree of trust. Um, speaking, speaking of, you know, maybe disparate training goals or, you know, different blocks, uh, different, uh, proximity to competition, concurrent training is something you've been opining about on social media recently. And we've gotten in, not you and I have gotten into that discussion, but this is something we talk about regularly at our seminars because people are like, wait, you're barbell medicine. So it's just lifting weights, right? Hmm. Only barbells were like, yeah, well, you know, if you want to lift anything, that's pretty much cool with us. Like, you know, as long as you're lifting and then, and people are like, yeah, but no cardio. Right. And we're like, yeah, well, if you could meet the physical activity guidelines, that's probably the minimum we want to see you do. I'm still, like, a well, yeah. still a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, concurrent training, uh, ha- is something that we, you know, have been talking about for a while and it's, um, we haven't really given it a, a good treatment on the podcast form. So, you know, Let's talk about it. What uh, in how do you define concurrent training when you're uh, when you're explaining to someone? Yeah. So what what people are talking about when they mean concurrent training is specifically training for quote unquote aerobic adaptations and then also doing resistance training. So I think what people talk about as concurrent training a lot of the times is is not what we mean academically by that, where they're training for two different sports, which is more like Mm -hmm. cross training, I guess. Um, I've even seen some people who are heavily siloed into the resistance training world see concurrent training as training for like muscular endurance and strength at the same time, which right. it's, more like- it's not concurrent training. That's just extending your set for 20 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, well, people like to say like, oh, is this concurrent training or concurrent programming? Is this conjugate? you know, training like West side stuff or conjugate programming, which is really just block type periodization. So I think there needs, there doesn't need to be this because I don't want this to happen. But if there was like a international organization that was widely, you know, regarded as, you know, the go-to for strength and conditioning uh, terminology, like, like Nomina Anatomica, which is now like Terminologia Anatomica, whatever, they changed their name. It's somewhere in Brazil and now in Portuguese. But we need that for just nomenclature purposes because, mm. you know, you get questions, or, and I do certainly too, about conjugate training. And it's like, do you mean block periodization or do you mean like the stuff that happens yeah. in Columbus, Ohio? Because I'm unclear as to like what we're talking about. <laughs> Although if we talk about conjugate training, I'm also unclear as like what does that actually mean? Because if it's just, you know, some days you're going to have a rep ef, repetition effort versus dynamic effort, like a power day, a hypertrophy day. And a strength day, I'm like, sounds a lot like DUP. And so yeah. if DUP is then conjugate, like, no, no, it can't be because you got to do it at Columbus. So in any case, I won't belabor that point. But we're talking about aerobic adaptations and strength adaptations, training from them at the same time. First question people are going to have is, well, what about the interference effect? Yeah. Like, I can't train for both at the same time, right? Come on, man, right? Yeah. And that and that is kind of uh, where, the, where the terminology originally came from and, and why this is an area of research 
is to see the quote unquote interference effect whereby, and there's essentially two hypotheses if you were to go back to the research in the early 80s on this and how it's expanded over time, is that yes, A, uh, the, the overarching hypothesis is there is an interference effect, uh, but the two kind of pathways from that, and I'll, I'll let you know if I agree with that or not, the kind of two pathways <laughs> of that are it's caused by an actual uh, molecular interference effect. So the idea that the, the signaling cascade and the actual adaptations themselves, which make someone better at resistance training, are fundamentally opposed to those that make you better at aerobic training. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you can see, like, if you think about it for a few seconds, you could think about maybe muscle fiber type differences um, you know, energy system preferences and the relationship with fiber type difference. And you go, oh, I could, I could see that. And there's also, you know, I could start spouting off about AMPK and, and mTOR and things like that, but I'm not cause that's boring. Um, yeah. <laughs> cause the, <Speak> for yourself. <laughs> I, I think, I think it's, it's interesting and, and it has been observed when people do this, but I think the, the, the other far more logical, uh, potential cause of a quote unquote interference effect is really just comes down to, again, resource management. And that's just the, the practical interference effect. And that means if I run a mile right now, and then you ask me to do a 1RM squat, it might be a lower number than if I hadn't run the mile first, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, or if we extend that outside of a single session, if I'm training to run the mile on a regular basis, pushing myself for uh, you know five to eight minutes, depending on how out of shape I am, um, then that is also going to cause problems when I try to four to five times a week do my fives on the squat bench and deadlift. So that, that, that makes sense. And it's, it does come down to simply being a, like a resource management issue. If I'm having to do all the things that require stimulus and recovery um, from, from training for, for, for running while training for, for squatting and deadlifting, there could be an issue. Yep. Now, the question is, is, is that really an interference effect, you know, or is that just a training load management issue? And sure. I would argue that the, there is actually, and the data has kind of gone both ways. So where we sit here in 2021 is I'm not super convinced there actually is a true interference effect at the molecular level. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if there is one, it might just be a side effect of specificity for training at different velocities. But I would think those would be semi-contained to the specific motor pattern you're training. So that's kind of a little theoretical aside. But the data overall is not clear on there actually being an interference effect from a molecular standpoint. There does seem to be, and it's been demonstrated empirically in studies, a potential uh, interference effect just from trying to do hard aerobic training while trying to do hard resistance training. Um, But to kind of prove the point that this is probably a practical thing. If you look at all the different ways to manage the interference effect, they don't normally have a molecular basis. Uh, They typically, or at least the largest effect of mitigating the so-called interference effect has practical basises. Basises, not a word. So um, (laughs) again, grammar, just killing it on this podcast. Um, so for example, some of the ways which you can reduce, uh, the, the observed interference effect is doing cardio, not before, but after training or after strength training so that it doesn't have an immediate Mm -hmm. negative effect, separating it by six hours or longer, doing it on different days, um, or doing modalities of cardiovascular training that have low impact and less eccentric components like cycling compared to running. So mm-hmm. all of those have very reasonable expl- explanations where you're essentially not in a glycogen depleted state suffering from muscle damage while you're trying to train or not psychologically uh, depleted in terms of your, your focus and your the energy you can give uh, when you go into a resistance training session. So I think it really does just come down to resource management. If I had to, to put forth my arguably non-expert opinion on this, because I'm not, while it is something that, that crosses a lot of areas of interest of mine, because physique athletes especially have to deal with limited resources while finding a way to expend calories and also maintain muscle mass. So it's something I'm interested in. And the data does, certain data points do suggest that if you try to do both at the same time, you can get diminished effects on one or both. But I do think it really just comes down to uh, that, that practical effect. And the final thing I would say, Jordan, is that a lot of the times in research, we are trying to set up a design to examine a relationship, which means 
we would do things that don't make sense in the real SNC setting, like doing a mm-hmm. hard run and then immediately doing max outs on squats, um, where right. any SNC coach worth their salt would not do that. But it's not because we're trying to bias the data; it's because we're trying to observe a potential effect to see if it's there. But sure. I don't think that's the greatest design to go. And why did it happen? Well, let's take a look at the molecular effects. Well, those molecular effects might just be the observed effects of what happens when you do really poor programming. You know? Sure. So, yeah. 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 Hard to parse out the importance of those molecular changes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, we I, we see eye to eye on on this. I, I think it's a fatigue thing for the most part. I mean, the molecular stuff is interesting, yep. but. Be, the clear relationship between these surrogate markers and actual outcomes, particularly over a long period of time, you know, or at least the longest time they've been measured, do not impress me. As Shania Twain would say, don't impress me much. But the the fatigue stuff is more interesting because it's like the way I see that then is that you're building all these positive psychological and physiological fitness adaptations that are just being masked on some level by the negative psychological and physiological adaptations, the fatigue from the existing training. At some point, there should be an inflection point where you're better able to tolerate that stuff. And then fitness adaptations are better able to be demonstrated. It's just like, it's probably not going to be eight weeks. It's probably not going to be 12 weeks. It's going to be longer, particularly if you're very detrained to start, or if your load management wasn't very good to start. If it's way too high, it's just going to you know, be blunted. And so how this works out in the real life, in real world is that you have a bunch of people, particularly lifters that are scared to do any cardio because they're like, Ooh, my gains. And I'm like, I'm more worried about your VO2 max, to be honest, your cardiorespiratory <laughs> fitness. Like how many Mets can you sustain for a long period of time? Because we know that there's like this dose dependent relationship between that and cardiorespiratory cardiovascular disease risk. Mm-hmm. And like, we'd want to try to get that higher. It doesn't mean you need to be like, uh, you know, national level, you know, endurance athlete, but like, Again, achieving at least the minimum physical activity guidelines for aerobic training seems like an excellent place to start. And if your squat happens to go down or plateau for a few weeks, I think that's okay. Because honestly, unless you have a meet in two weeks. Well, I disagree with everything. I I agree with everything (laughs) you said except for the last part there. I will accept no depression in my squat. (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Never have a bad day at work. Never, you know, mm-hmm. uh, accidentally have some no, idiopathic insomnia. Nice <laughs> sure. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. It's fine. If, yeah. It's just one of those things. It's, it's like we're not doing trying to get people to do more cardio to lose weight, e- even though there, we do have an obesity epidemic. But there are mo- so many health benefits to doing that that are in addition to the resistance training stuff mm-hmm. that you're just not getting by doing one or the other. The lifter guys be like, so you can't just do cardio. And it's like, well, that's okay. I'm on board with that. And then I say, well, you can't just do lifted. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Here. <laughs> I am very out of breath after a set of somewhere between four to six reps. <laughs> and it's like, well, well, I think, you know, that's a conditioning thing. We could probably, you know, uh, have some benefit there. But if we take this further, so besides just the end, you know, yeah, we got to hit those physical activity guidelines. You got to do some cardio. What about actually trying to improve performance here? Like there were guys that I was training with uh, back in medical school that were trying to like deadlift 600 and run a six minute mile, Mm. you know, on the same day. The idea was they would deadlift 600 in the middle of the day and then a couple hours later they would run a six minute mile. Um, When you're training for both of those or or you just have a, you know, either an endurance athlete or a resistance training athlete, like how do you divvy up what's more important and like what gets more training time and more resources? You know, if this is a resource management issue, like how do you decide that and and what sort of changes your calculus? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think um, something that was really interesting to me started happening basically in the mid 2010 to 2020 periods, so like 2015, 2014, is that CrossFit started getting competitive enough that it changed the practices at the Mm -hmm. box level versus the games or even regional level. Um, And this became apparent to me as someone who's not really in the CrossFit community. When I went to a uh, a conference that I had the the honor to present at in Norway, um, the uh, the personal trainer conference there, and there was a gentleman there who was presenting on a survey, an informal survey that he'd done of high-level CrossFit coaches and high-level CrossFit competitors and over 50% of them said that they they don't follow the CrossFit tenets of right. basically doing wads, you know, uh, of d- being constantly varied. 
but they actually had a periodized program and were working with strength conditioning coaches. And when you go all the way back to, you know, the arguments we have within the resistance training community about periodization really only makes sense within the resistance training kind of sphere as to whether or not periodization is necessary or beneficial, or if it's just because you peak strength before the test or, or what have you, when you were thinking about needing to be good at multiple domains simultaneously, like a team sport athlete or a CrossFit competitor, or, you know, your friend who got a hair up his ass and wanted to run a six minute mile and deadlift 600 pounds. Now you actually do need to think about periodization. When do I emphasize this? When do I put this on maintenance? When do I emphasize that? When do I put that on maintenance? How do I transition between these? How do I manage the overlapping fatigue? And then how do I peak to the best combined performance of the two on the day that I'm going to test them? That is periodization. That's the name of the game, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, when you taper, uh, we have some data to suggest that maybe you are losing a little bit of muscle mass if you extend it, but it results in a peak in strength. Uh, Lenicky pops in and points out that yeah. that, would, you yeah. know, that that proves Lenicky has point. entered the chat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the idea there is that you've got all these different bars going up, you know, and, and like the perfectionist would want all of them to peak and result in the highest peak in strength. But the reality is, is that fitness and fatigue are intermeshed. You can't make fatigue completely dissipate or you make fitness completely dissipate or, or dissipate too much. So the idea is, all right, well, what's the, the best calculus for how do I get these things to peak, as many of them to peak at the same time at the highest peak I can to result in the performance I want on that day? For a power lifter, very different equation than it is for someone who is like a CrossFit competitor who needs to mm -hmm. be in shape aerobically, anaerobically, and needs to have multiple motor learning skills, you know, gymnastics, uh, Olympic lifting, and strength all there on the same day. So I would be lying if I said I know exactly how to do that. Um, right, yeah, sure. However, um, as someone who has tried to train for multiple strength events at the same time, there was a point when I was training for the Auckland Strongest Man where the, there was the uh, four or five events I was training there. So stones, I believe it was stones, truck pull, um, uh, circus dumbbell press, um, and there was a, a, a carrying event as well, and then a deadlift. And I was having to do that at the same time as snatch and clean and jerk and then squat bench and deadlift. There's just not that many days in the week. So I had this kind of rotating mm -hmm. schedule of thinking, well, what's the, all right. And I also have different levels of experience in these. Like I'm a relatively experienced power lifter. I'm a non-novice Olympic lifter and I am a novice strongman. However, so many of the skills transfer over that it was really more like an event by event basis. So I was a novice stone lifter, right? For example. Mm -hmm. So I had to think about, all right, well, what's the, the minimum dose I need to improve some of these skills, which is very different for say my back squat versus my stone over bar. And then, all right, based on the competition schedule for the year, when do I emphasize this? And when do I put the other one on the quote unquote back burner, which goes back to what I was saying earlier, which might just be one single a week at like a seven RPE because that is enough to prevent any significant decay in a movement, um, which we actually got good data right. on now. So it was kind of this rotating kind of concept of at different times, I'd focus on different things depending on what's complementary or what was just too much. Like I wasn't going to do a clean and jerk deadlift stones farmer's carry cycle because my lower back would decide to vacate the premises, you know? <laughs> So I had to think about, all right, well, I'm not going to do them back-to-back -back cycles either. So, all right, I'll focus on two of those now, work the overhead stuff and bench, and then come back and do those. But I can't completely divorce myself from these movements or they'll backslide too much. So I've got to do at least a single on them at a low RPE. And then, okay, where mm -hmm. am I going to need deloads? All right, where's the competition? Then I work back from there. And you get this kind of emergent periodization strategy um, that is dependent upon the needs of the person. And I think that's basically what good CrossFit programming looks like. If you think about how much dedication, depending on the needs of the athlete, their baseline strength and their weaknesses in the various domains do I need to develop in the time course I have? And then where do things like deloads emerge from that? Where do things like transition blocks emerge from that? And then, then we got to, you know, auto-regulate and manage it the whole time, looking at their psychological response and did their predicted performance actually follow the path or do we need to adjust something? So it's, um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like, I imagine conducting an orchestra. 
So it, it just, you kind of, kind of keep Physiology. going. Exactly. You know, well, I actually, I actually did do CrossFit for like almost two years after I, I, 2015 raw nationals, I totaled like 1770 something, 93 kilos. And I was like, powerlifting stupid. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to, I'm going to do CrossFit now. And I, I, in my brain, I wanted to be competitive in a different barbell sport, mm-hmm. but like Olympic weightlifting was too close. Strongman. I, I don't know. It never, I never really enjoyed, like I, tra- I trained at a strongman gym, like the gym that I was training. I had like fingal fingers, like nice. that's the level of, right. And I'm like, nah, that's <laughs> what to do. <laughs> I'm going to try CrossFit. I think that, yeah. And, um, I was just so curious, like just how do people program this stuff? Mm. And the one, super important thing is clearly these people's work capacity has been built up either over a long period of time through just history of athletics and like training, being an athlete their entire life, or they've actually taken, you know, their coaches have taken conscious sort of effort to like, all right, you're look, you're going to have to be able to train two or three times a day for hours on end or like, and have all these extra sessions. So in addition to like not working a real job, like you also need to be able to train all the, all the time. And then in addition to that, the way I, explain this to people, it looked like space repetition learning for me. It's like the things that I could not do very well, I ended up spending a a lot more time on them provided they didn't fatigue me too much where it impacted the rest of my training for the week. But the stuff that I was really good at, which was all the slow strength stuff, and even to some extent, the Olympic weightlifting, like if you asked me to like, yeah, just go power clean a one RM, I'm like, all right, cool. I can do, you know, 320, Uh 330. They're like, how you're a power lifter. I'm like, well, if you deadlift over 700, like the power clean is just not it doesn't look great. I'm not winning any awards, but like compared to, Hey, go do 10 muscle ups. Like, Whoa, yeah. Hey there about the muscle up thing. Uh, or, or like 50 double unders anyway. So the, the whole thing was like the stuff I couldn't do very well. I saw quite frequently the stuff I could do not so well, but kind of okay. I would see somewhat frequently. Uh, and the stuff I was really good at, I almost never saw unless it was like a maintenance session just mm-hmm. to make sure I didn't decay and like wither away. I was literally deadlifting once every three weeks, like from the floor, regular or whatever. I would do like snatch pulls sometimes just because it was like, all right, still a pull, get your snatch up, whatever. But like as far as a regular deadlift, I already deadlifted more than any CrossFitter that had ever lived at that point. So like <laughs> yeah. not now, I'm sure, but you know. Um, so yeah, it was just interesting. And it, it was just, I didn't enjoy any of it. None of it was like, man, this is fun. Like, it didn't hook you. but I was, it, yeah, no, it didn't. And I, I think maybe if I were better at it, maybe I'd hit that like, hit that endorphin button, but it was more just like a grind. It was interesting to do. And now I feel like I have some perspective on it, but um, yeah, that was like the, as concurrent as I've ever gotten, like just literally doing all sorts of stuff or like row for 60 minutes. Oh. I just, now you see 100%. why I have never done CrossFit because it doesn't, it doesn't right, yeah, yeah. not enough of it sits in the lifting domain for me. So, but I know yeah. exactly what you're talking about. I remember when I, when I first uh, started Olympic lifting, you know, I had a back squat of 225, but I my best snatch I ever did was 87. That's kilos, guys. Yes. Two, That's two kilos. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 495, 495 Thank you. Pounds. I just, yeah. look, you know. I lost all yeah. respect for about 10 seconds there. Yes, so, right. So, yeah. Like, yeah. When, when you can squat nearly 500 pounds and your snatch is less than 200 pounds, that's called being a bad Olympic lifter. So how sure, often yeah. did I squat when I was working with, with my coach Stas most recently? Like every other week. You know, because it just yeah, wasn't, yeah. it was basically, I don't want your squat to get lower, you know? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can like keep it there with minimal input, mm-hmm. but like, and so the, the learning thing is like, well, if you know something really, really well, you don't need to see it until, you know, the way I had set my studying up for med school was like 90 days later. If I knew something right off the bat, everything about it, I didn't see it for three months. And eventually I just removed the card or the question from the deck. There but if go. I didn't know anything, I'd see it the next day just to mm-hmm. like keep it fresh. Um, yeah, I don't know if that analogy works out perfectly, but I like it. Uh, when would you advise against concurrent training? I have an idea of what your answer is, but I'm curious. Like, when would you say, hey, you know what? Now's not the time. This is, let's not do this. Yeah, I would say if you're actively going to try to perform or do a high volume or overreaching phase in resistance training, that's not also the time to push a bunch of aerobic work. Um but it really just depends on the goals of the individual, you know? Um, and just like you were saying, like what's, what's the minimum dose to maintain something? Like if you don't want your aerobic fitness to slide, but you need to really emphasize resistance training, then that's what you shift to there. You'd be shifting mm-hmm. to the, the least amount of aerobic work that will, will prevent a, a noticeable decay over the time course that you're, you're going to be pushing the, the, the resistance training. Yeah. 
And on the flip flip end, uh, like if you had an uh, an endurance athlete, I, I'm probably not going to make them, you know, when they're peaking for their race, let's say it's a 5K or whatever, I'm probably not going to have them test their squat bench deadlift, you know, a week, one week out. But I probably, I'm still going to have them lift a little bit. It just yeah. might be, you know, like doubles at 75%, two or three sets, just like something or a single at seven, like just get in, get out, you know, whatever. Um, but I don't want that strength to decay any, and I don't want all the fatigue to bleed off to where you actually then uh, affect the fitness adaptations. Because yep. the whole reason we were strength training for the endurance athlete in the first place to like, yo, let's get you stronger so you can, you know, apply more force. And then as that transfers over to your other sport, like get better. Um, what is your favorite, uh, conditioning protocols for lifters? You got a guy like, yeah, yeah I'm asking for a friend. You got a guy in his <laughs> mid thirties, you know, he's in pretty good shape. He's he's been an elite power lifter for, for a little bit, but now the, the, the guys are getting stronger. He's no longer elite. It's fine. Uh, and he's just trying to do, uh, some more conditioning. He already meets the physical activity guidelines, just goes for some walks. But, uh, if you always got to try to improve his aerobic fitness, what would you, what would you have the guy do? I normally follow the path of most enjoyment. So, um, like I find, and this is not everyone and it may not be this, this hypothetical person is definitely not you, Jordan. Um, <laughs> but I find that like a lot of, uh, strength athletes have a little bit of closet bodybuilder in them. Like they like to catch sure. a pump. They like to do their accessory work. So, uh, what I'll often do is just give them a little more accessory work and then give it to them in a circuit format. So mm -hmm. there's good data showing like circuit training tends to produce pretty similar cardiovascular adaptations to actual cardiovascular training. So like if we've got, you know, a lat pull down, uh, a dumbbell chest press, a leg curl, leg extension, and we just do that as a big giant set at basically the least amount of rest between those sets that you can handle and decrease it over time and keep the rep range double digits. I find that's a, that's, that's a fun way, you know, where you feel like you're, 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 you're doing the bodybuilding, you catch a sick pump, which is always good. And uh, it can be quite enjoyable. It's um, good for the soul. Yeah, absolutely. Some people, they lean a little more CrossFit and, and want to do quote unquote Metcons and you can, you know, get fun implements out or battle ropes or things like that, flip tires or whatever. And I have, I have no issue with that. I just think you need to keep it sufficiently light and think about what will, are you actually inducing any muscle damage with the movements you select? So yeah, circuity fun Metcon stuff, if that's someone's flavor um, or simply uh, just, doing cardio, like literally just jumping on an elliptical or, or a bike, uh, or, or one of those things that you also used to, to, to air con your room. Um, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the assault bikes, yeah. yeah, the assault bike, whatever, whatever they want. I, I think, um, some people just don't care, um, and just want to get it done and you can look towards more efficiency, which might just be, you know, 20 minutes of moderate intensity, steady state while they listen to a podcast. Other people like to catch the pump. Other people want to play CrossFit. And I think all of them are viable. Um, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with any of them really. Yeah. I, I, I like the point you made about think about what you're doing and, and you know, the muscle damage or the fatigue costs that you're trying, you're going to incur. So I, and again, I don't know why I think it's either something about my face or like my body habitus, but people are like, I just want to do farmer's walks and flip tires for cardio. Can I do that? And I'm like, I mean, you, you can, but like compared to a 20 minute bike, like on the assault bike or a brisk walk or rowing for 20 minutes. If you're just incurring a greater cost yeah. as far as resources go to the extent that matters to you. Well, I mean, that's personal preference. If, you know, during this run in period where you start getting used to that stuff, uh, you know, if you, your deadlift and squat don't happen to make as good a progress, like, and that's okay with you and you can live with that because you really do like this conditioning, like that's all great. But if you're a power lifter and you signed up for a meet, you know, it's coming up, I, that probably wouldn't be the conditioning that I would give you. If yeah. you really were like, I, I, but I love strongman stuff. I'm like, what about a sled? How do you feel about a sled? You want to pull a sled, push a sled, yep. yeah, flip a sled. I mean, I don't know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's just, it's one of those things. It's like a cost benefit thing, right? It's like all of these different modalities produce, you know, somewhat similar aerobic adaptations, the differences are going to be more specific to that mode. So running is going to produce, you know, very running specific stuff like running economy and, you know, some other unique things, rowing, same sort of deal, cycling, whatever. And then Metcons, all that other sort of stuff. But the, at the 
base level when we're talking about cardiorespiratory fitness and we ever measure that in a lab with a unique test that you've never seen before, it's all going to be about the same. And like, yeah. I'm cool with it. It's just, what are the fatigue costs that you're generating? So yeah, I totally agree. Whatever you prefer, do it. Uh, but people are going to say, yeah, well, that's, that's nice. But how much though, Eric, mm. how much of this should I, I don't do any conditioning right now. Not this is for a different person because obviously hypothetical. I, yeah. Hypothetically, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, if you're literally doing nothing, it doesn't take much to, to move the needle. I, I would I would no pun intended. I would uh, <laughs> that's it. apparently in this conversation that's EPO. I don't even know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, right, yes. Yeah. So um, I would probably just start with literally one session a week of, of twenty to thirty minutes if you're not doing anything. Um, because it will tire you out. And the beauty of being completely deconditioned is that uh, every small dose gives you a dispro- disproportionately large response. Um, mm-hmm. and then I would probably work towards like the physical activity guidelines, yeah. um, you know, get yourself up to maybe just on your off days and some people that that's not convenient for, if you're traveling 30 minutes to go to a gym, you're not going to do that on your off days, but you know, you can walk around the block or things like that. But I would say it wouldn't be a bad idea to get up to two to three sessions per week. If you're, especially if your training is not producing any kind of aerobic effect, like if you're someone who takes really long rest periods chronically stays in like the five or under rep range, then it probably is more important for you to get in those two to three sessions per week. Um, especially if you have a sedentary job, which I think is, is, is very, very common. Um, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't even need to be like structured exercise either. Like for example, I go on a, a, a relatively brisk walk every morning with my wife and we like walk to breakfast or something like that. And I have pretty decent like cardiorespiratory fitness. It's not great by any means, but it's certainly not anything that would, would, would make you concerned about my health if we did a checkup, Jordan, you know? So sure. it doesn't have to be super, super structured. And uh, another option that, you know, that I should have mentioned is um, some people really like to get out in nature, you know? So, mm-hmm. so hikes and, and walks. Uh, I think same considerations as far as uh, exercise selection. If you do want to go on a jog or a run, do expect the, that impact to add up to some degree, especially if you're, mm-hmm. if you're going up hills and you come down the hill, you're going to be surprisingly sore. Um, but yeah, I would say starting out, if you're doing nothing one time a week and build up to doing either two or three, uh, kind of your mileage may vary as far as what kind of dose response you get up. Yep. Like over the first month, try to work up to that physical activity guideline minimums above that kind of choose your own adventure based on what you want to do. Uh, and just the last parting shot here before we get all your contact info and everything, you know, people are going to do this cardio, but like, does it actually increase their total daily energy expenditure? Mm. Are you willing to, to plant, plant your, plant a flag on uh, one side or the other? I think to a point it will. Yeah. I, I think, um, so this is a really interesting area where, you know, like the constrained model of energy expenditure, you know, Herman Ponser. Uh, and, the, and the work done in the, in the Hazda, I believe I pronounced that right. I always dyslexify the Z and the D there. Um, <laughs> I think it's important to remember that when we see, uh, you know, hunter-gatherer societies who have incredibly high physical activity, but a similar TDEE to a largely sedentary relative uh, Western population, we also have to remember that the, the hunters in that hunter-gatherer society are basically the typical hypogonadal reds overtrained male. Like they have lower testosterone scores. They have lower Mm -hmm. stature, which is Mm -hmm. probably not just ethnicity, but probably actually does come from the fact that they're malnourished and and overactive. Uh, And when you look at other societies, which are, um, let's say pre-industrial, but post-agricultural, like if you look at some of the Quaker societies and similar ones in the United States. Subsistence farmers, yeah. Yeah, they actually have um, higher energy expenditures and also have higher activities. Um, like I think I saw one study where these Quaker dudes are walking around at like eight to 12% body fat, um, burning 4,800 calories a day. And they are, you know, pretty damn active clocking over, over, over 20,000 steps per day. So that looks a little different than, than the Hasda. And that just means that they're getting sufficient energy to meet their needs. And when you really look at like what causes low energy availability and the symptoms of reds, it is when your output demands are not met by your energy intake, uh, considering the needs of both physiology and uh, exercise slash activity. So I think a lot of that constrained model, that constrained model is basically part of the process of how the body deals with low energy availability, but it can be curtailed, maybe not completely, but substantially by simply providing enough energy, having that higher energy flux state, if you will. So Mm -hmm. 
um, yeah, there's, there's a big difference between the marathon runner who is over restricting calories and, and dealing with maybe the female athlete triad and reds versus the marathon runner who's properly fueled. And you will see different energy expenditures in those two individuals. But um, certainly we do know that your body is remarkably efficient at conserving energy uh, to where we can see these scenarios where someone spends all day active, but manages through uh, compensations and other uh, parts of TDEE with that number in aggregate, not going up nearly as much as you'd expect. Yep. I think it's a very nuanced take. I like the, the added, uh, caveat about being act, you know, well-fed because if you're not, that kind of throws off this whole, whole ball of wax. I, uh, yeah, I, I largely agree. I, I think people overestimate the contribution of exercise to their TDEE, particularly long-term if you're a chronic exerciser and, uh, you know, overall weight stable, or if you're like most people who are just starting exercise and energy restricting, I don't know that your TDE goes up at all. And so that kind of becomes problematic when you're like, but the math says I was supposed to eat another thousand calories to hit this deficit. And it's like, yeah, well, it's probably not going to work out long-term for you. But, and then obviously if you're doing a ton of activity, like you're training for an ultra, you're like Tour de France kind of stuff, like, yeah, your energy expenditure goes up markedly, but then you start losing weight uh, and, you know, things kind of settle back down. So it's, it's just more complicated as most things are with the human body. Mm. But, uh, when I see hear people say, yeah, I burned an extra 700 calories today in the gym. And I'm like, mm, probably, probably not probably much lower than that. Particularly if you've been doing it for a long time, my Apple watch tells me every day I train that it's like a thousand calories. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense given what my BMR is, my calorie intake. <laughs> so using all that, uh, what is it, the phys- physical activity, the PALS data, physical activity? Yeah. Well, yeah. it's actually an interesting thing about that is that, uh, so the e-mechanic study, and uh, I'll, mm-hmm. I, I won't get into too depth on this. That's the, I love these acronyms, by the way, they're getting ridiculous. I think it's the, what, the, the mechanisms of energy conservation, something, something, they're, they're, there's too many letters. Um, I can't get the rest. No, me neither. But basically they took around 200 people, um, I think about 170 finished per protocol, men and women mostly overweight um, and in, I believe, middle age. And they gave them activity trackers, so like the accelerometry on the arms. Uh, They did uh, doubly labeled water, and then they had supervised uh, activity, uh, supervised exercise, I should say, on uh, treadmills with the research staff, ensuring they burned X amount of calories per week. One group burned around 1,000, the other one around 2,200 per week on average, if I recall correctly. And they didn't observe... Uh, weight loss in, or it was very small, like 0.2 kilograms or something like that in the group that added a thousand uh, kcals. Uh, and then the other group, I think lost about two kilograms over six months. So mm-hmm. definitely there was this, uh, what they suggested, not a reduction in energy expenditure because it wasn't picked up on the um, W labeled water or on their, their armbands. They thought, okay, therefore it must just be an increase in compensatory eating, which it surely was part of it. Um, mm-hmm. However, they did a recent uh, sub-analysis of it, uh, just came out last month and we're covering it in the coming mass issue, or we just covered it in mass, excuse me, in the one that just came out on the first, uh, where they took a subset of around 50 of those participants. And instead of just looking at resting metabolic rate via a metabolic cart, those 50 uh, were put in a metabolic chamber. So they actually had really high quality, high precision uh, measures of various compartments of total daily energy expenditure. And they found there was about a 4% drop in NEAT, which wasn't picked up by the accelerometry, mm-hmm. which you would think would be a decent surrogate for our, our Apple watches and our Fitbits and whatnot. So, you know, there might be some uh, reductions in energy expenditure that just aren't picked up by the, the insensitive commercial tech we have, where you would have to act, actually be in a, in, a, in a metabolic chamber to see it uh, that, are, that are adding up over time, because it's only like that, you know, 4% change or whatever. Uh, that, that is not only uh, contributing to the reason why your energy expenditure doesn't go up as much, but also because you do more activity and you probably will eat a little bit more as well. Yeah. Well, you know, that's how we're going to open up the barbell medicine clinic. It's actually going to be a metabolic chamber. So you can come in, get very accurate data. Then we can prescribe you the exact calorie deficit that you need and not address any of the behaviors necessary to do so. You know, that's what we're going to do here. That's the that's perfect. And I see <laughs> your overhead definitely making it worth it for having a metabolic chamber. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're very inexpensive. It's going to be fun. Yes. Very cool. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for joining us here at the Barbell Medicine Podcast. If people don't follow you yet or can't 
they don't know where to find you, where are you at on the internet? Oh, too many places. But uh, thank you so much for having me on. It, it is a true pleasure and honor. Uh, probably the best one-stop shop is 3dmusclejourney.com. That is the number three, the letter D, then musclejourney.com. Um, from there, you can find links to my books. You can find links to Mass. Um, we've got our YouTube blog. Um, the only other places to check out besides there would be at Helms3DMJ, where you can see a lot of the guest uh, podcasts I do. I'm sure I will have a square for this episode on there soon. Um, for sure. And then finally, Iron Culture, where that's uh, me and Omar uh, talking that lifting jive as, as we do every Monday. So, yeah. I love it. Very cool. Thank you so much for joining us here. My pleasure. All right. That's a wrap on episode 147 with Dr. Eric Helms. Big shout out to him for coming on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I've linked uh, to all of his contact info, content, etc. in the description below. Make sure you check him out. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Uh, hey, before you guys go anywhere, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you the latest nuance in health and fitness right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We'll see you guys next week. Bye.